Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Today, we're going to explore whether emerging markets are worth the risk. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation, or needs. So emerging markets. Investors are becoming more and more interested in emerging markets as Australian and US markets become overheated. So first, what are they? Well, maybe maybe first, we should not start with just business-like as you normally do, Shani. <laughs> so why don't you give some updates about you? There's been some stuff happening with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what you want me to bring up. Okay, well, in the bonds episode, yes. remember when we did that one? So we were talking about your water bottle. <laughs> so remember yeah. you had your hobo water bottle? I did. I replaced it. Yeah, you have a new water bottle. So yes. that's that's something important going on in your life. Do you, want, do you want to talk about this one? I mean, it's a Fiji water bottle. It's yeah, so still a plastic water bottle that I feel is going to end up all over my face as well. Yeah, it's still plastic, but it's not there yet. No, but it's very on trend for the emerging markets episode. You think? Maybe I'm just investing more into an emerging market. You think buying expensive bottled water <laughs> is on trend for an emerging market? Okay. Well, that's uh, that's nice. Um, and also, we went to an event on Thursday. We did, Yes. So we went to the Equity Mates, another podcast. Mm-hmm. We went and uh, and saw that. We did. Um, so Mark was speaking. He was on the panel. He did very very well. Um, but we have this we have this joke with Will, our producer, that we we're going to start beef with a, another podcast with um, the Equity Mates. We, well, <laughs> yes, but we shouldn't have said that. But yes. Um, Okay. Well, this this will be interesting. This isn't like an East Coast, West Coast rap situation, but no. we'll see if this escalates. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So should I, should I get back to emerging markets now? I feel like we should. So oh. um, before we do, though, I do want to ask you something about um, our podcast. Okay. You do like to check in on where people are listening in, and your favorite is Madagascar, and there was a crisis in Madagascar. There, there, well, to be clear, anyone who has loved ones, there was not a crisis in Madagascar. There was a crisis about our podcast and Madagascar. Our you last, were very worried about this. I was worried. It took six days for our fan in Madagascar to listen to the last episode. Well, we have two fans. Well, yeah, one of them disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> you seem very upset about this. Mark comes and updates me every single morning into the office about this. Yes, I'm very busy. I'm yeah. <laughs> a very important person, clearly. Um, so with emerging markets, it's actually it's a little bit close to home. So I shared an article about a month ago with Mark about Sri Lanka, which is where I was born. Sri Lankan stocks have returned more than any other country in 2021. So it's 30% so far this year, which is a pretty eye-watering return. Okay, yeah, that's that's good. I was actually, so we did this island thing. In a previous episode, I was also born in an emerging market, mm-hmm. so Taiwan. Um, so Taiwan is up 14.48% since the beginning of the year. So that's better than the S&P 500 and the ASX 200, but not as good as Sri Lanka. Yeah. So obviously, this is over very short time periods. We're just looking back to the beginning of 2021. What it really shows, though, is the potential for growth in these developing markets and why it's piqued the interest of investors who are hunting for returns outside of their own markets that we think at Morningstar and many investors think are overvalued. I think this search has only increased because of how low interest rates are and because of the substitution effect that we see when rates are low. So when investors are facing bleak returns from other asset classes, they naturally tend to substitute stocks for bonds and cash, particularly for investors with a focus with income generation. 
And that makes sense. There's a certain level of returns needed to achieve goals. So when prospects are looking dire, investors look to riskier asset classes. Yeah. And one of the important things to point out and that that fund managers often say that invest in emerging markets, and this should be obvious to everyone, is that they are not the same. So obviously, all these different countries are different. There are more developed emerging markets like the place I was born, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, Israel, for example. They're all classified as emerging markets. Some people consider them developed markets given the economic growth they've gone through. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of that spectrum is the neighbor to my place of birth, India. India is a country that has enormous opportunity to grow and succeed, which many emerging markets investors find extremely attractive. Then there's the in-between, so groups of countries with varied economic, institutional and social progress that can be a breeding ground of significant opportunity, but also significant loss. All right. So, Shani, we're going to go back in history again. I know (laughs) that you love this. So, we're going to go back and talk about the early 2000s. So, that's really when emerging market investing took off. So, investors were looking at markets like China, for example, which at the time was experiencing incredible growth and was providing a lot more attractive returns as it was becoming an economic powerhouse. So, If we look at that sort of decade in the 2000s, the short-term returns were really, really attractive. So from 2000 to 2009, MSCI Emerging Markets Index, including dividends, had an annualized return of 9.78% compared to the S&P 500 in the US that actually returned negative 0.95%. So remember when everyone tells you that stocks don't go down, that is a decade of the S&P 500 going down, but that's just me on my soapbox. And then if we look at the MSCI, developed world without the U.S. involved, it was up 1.62% a year. And this story looks very different in the following decades. So between 2010 and 2019, the Emerging Markets Index returned 3.68%, World XUSA 5.32%, and the S&P 500 13.56%. When we smooth out the returns like this, we ignore a very important consideration with emerging markets investing, and that's volatility. Between 1988 and 2019, emerging markets outperformed U.S. stocks by 34 percentage points or more per year four times. So that was in 93, 99, 2007, and 2009, and underperformed U.S. stocks by that same magnitude four times, 95, 97, 98, and 2013. Yeah, so what we can take from this is emerging market stocks can or markets can certainly provide eye-watering returns, just like Shani's example with Sri Lanka. Um, but there's a lot of other factors that need to be considered. And these factors lead to volatility. And those can be factors like debt defaults and currency. And we'll go into some of those, but that often means you do see this volatility in returns. Yeah. So we can agree that 30% is a pretty high reward, but there's a reward for taking on a high risk. When we look at the current state of valuations for emerging markets, we can get an indication from the PE ratios across ETFs. So we look at the Miski World All Cap ETF that has an overall PE of 19.69, the iShares and S&P 500 sits at 22.43, and the Miski Emerging Market sits at 14.84. So on a relative basis, emerging markets are appearing cheaper than all markets and the US. Emerging markets have a dif- have different considerations to what you would have investing in developed markets. So let's talk a l- little about a couple of these risks. And let's start with default. And we can start with an example here. 
Okay, so you want me to start with a debt default, yeah. <laughs> even though you're the one that's poor credit risk given your water bottle. But I will, uh, I'll go through this. So, yeah, we talked about in this bonds episode where we first introduced you to Shani and her water bottle. We talked about U.S. government debt and how loans from the U.S. government are considered risk free because literally the government can print more money to pay back any of those outstanding debts. Well, with emerging markets, this just doesn't happen. So loans are usually issued in U.S. dollars. So that means a country like Argentina can't print money to pay back any debts that they have. So let's look at what happened with Argentina. Argentina has defaulted five times in the last 35 years, which is a pretty shocking track record. In June of 2017, before its triple hat trick, Argentina issued 2.75 billion US dollars of 100-year bonds, which we now know the fate of. Two years later, in 2019, Argentina announced that they would default and struck a deal to restructure their debts on terms that roughly equaled 55% of the value of the original bonds. The outcome of this deal was that Argentina must comply to economic reforms, including extremely tight controls on government spending, corporate and individual taxation increases, and an end to money printing. So when we did this, when we practiced this, Shawnee said triple hat trick. I had to explain to Mark what that was because he doesn't really follow cricket that much. He likes to go to the cricket and drink beer in the sun, but he doesn't really follow the game. Okay. Well, I thought, but I thought it was something different. I, I was thinking about ice hockey. Right. And so like to me, a triple hat trick is nine. Right. No. So, so you have three a hat trick is a three and then double hat trick is four, triple hat trick is a five. And I know this because Sri Lanka is obviously very cricket obsessed. My dad still maintains that the 96 World Cup was the best day of his life and he's had two children. So that can say how much we love cricket. Yeah. Yeah. And I've met your sister and she's great, but, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, I guess what happened I guess, with me? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, I, I should know this. I went to the cricket museum, as you know. You did in, in Bowerall. Bowerall. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, <laughs> was it riveting stuff, mate? Um, I don't know. There, there were some Sri Lankan guys there. Okay. That guy, who's who's the really fat guy? I mean, I feel like I'm going to cause some sort of. Okay, so I can't say <laughs> this, or they'll like kick you while you're not in the country. But no. <laughs> okay, well, there's a guy that Shani refers to him as he eats too much curry. It's basically all of them. But <laughs> okay, well, anyway, back to uh, back to Argentina, which is one of my favorite countries, incidentally. But yeah, this situation that you described in Argentina with all these different defaults, that's obviously a pretty difficult environment for a business, a company you would invest in to grow and prosper. Exactly right. So there's a darker side to emerging market investing. And as we've mentioned before, we're huge proponents of investors knowing what they're getting themselves into. But anyway, it's not all doom and gloom. Let's speak a little bit about the opportunity. And I wouldn't call Mark a fangirl of many things, but I wish you could see the twinkle in his eye when he talks about Jeremy Grantham. So Mark, maybe you want to talk about Grantham and the opportunity he sees in emerging markets. Yeah, I think fangirl is probably pushing it a little <laughs> bit. But uh, but yeah, so Jeremy Grantham, who I've spoken about in other episodes, and who I speak about all the time on the webinars. So for and people- just in his personal life as well. Yep. You're really painting me to be a pretty exciting <laughs> guy here. Um, but yeah, anyway, for those that don't know Jeremy Grantham, and Shawnee now does, uh, he's a really well-known investor, and he was a co-founder of an asset manager based in Boston called GMO. So he's obviously the G in the GMO, and they manage about $120 billion. And he's famous for calling a lot of market tops. And we talked about before that he did call um, that this year was going to be the market top. And 
one of the things that he tells investors is to put money in emerging markets. And there's more value in emerging markets than in the US, Australia, the UK, Europe. So he does think, as I said, there's this epic bubble that's about to pop. And, uh, and yeah, he thinks that this is, uh, this is a good opportunity to get into emerging markets. Yeah. So Grantham did point to a number of reasons why he thinks there's a bubble, but that's another episode entirely. If you'd like to read a little bit more on it, the article is called Waiting for the Last Dance. It's a good article. Do you wish he was waiting for a dance with you, Mark? Yes, that's that's. <laughs> thank you for turning it into that. But anyway, so Shawnee's thoughts aside, and Grantham's thoughts on the bubble aside, he does see major opportunities in emerging markets, and he says emerging markets in many ways are the growth that's left in the system. They will guarantee to grow faster than the developed countries. They're much cheaper. They haven't been beat up. They don't have as many speculative, and they don't have as much speculative excess. They're a respectable investment. So that's a good quote, right? It is, yeah. yeah. And ultimately, he thinks they will tumble with US equities, but won't have as far to fall. And the crash won't be as bad because they're cheaper. Okay, so let's say you're on board with Grantham and you're ready to dip your toes in emerging markets. How do you actually access them? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So emerging markets are a little bit tricky because they're not as well researched and that means they're not as saturated as a market like U.S. or Aussie equities, but that is exactly what allows it to be full of opportunity. So undiscovered or unknown investments that could have high growth potential. So emerging markets investing can be time consuming, especially if you're doing the due diligence yourself. To name a few of the hurdles, there's different languages, accounting standards, and customs that can complicate relative investment valuations. So let's take a look at collective investment vehicles, which is just a fancy way of saying funds and ETFs that allow you to access emerging markets with one trade or one investment. Okay, so why don't we start with passive? So passive indexes are in most cases cheaper than active. And of course, you know that because you've been listening to this before. And management fees do have a detrimental impact to performance. So we've seen many investors choose passive over active in the last few years because they're just not seeing the value with active funds. And it's true, the majority do underperform their passive counterpoints. And this is the case with many sectors and regions, but with emerging markets, this is where active managers can add value. They tend to do well when the underlying market is inefficient. The degree of efficiency relates to how much the prices in the market reflect the underlying valuation. So nobody knows how efficient a market is. So the question boils down to how often does an active manager outperform their designated index? This normally is a lot harder in markets where there is intense competition and widespread investor interest. So this is where emerging markets prevail. Yeah, so we've got this report called the Active Passive Barometer Report, and it is U.S. focused, but it still has a lot of great insights. And it showed that active managers have the most success against passive managers in these inefficient markets. And they did have high success rates with international and emerging market funds. And one core difference that we should mention as well between active and passive funds in this space is that active managers obviously get to choose the countries that they're investing in and in what amounts. So let's take a look at the iShares MISCI Emerging Markets ETF, which is passive, and its region exposure. 38% of this fund is in one country, China. The next largest holding is Taiwan with 14.39% and South Korea with 13.6%. Okay, so the country I was born in was second. Now, we didn't get to Sri Lanka. No. <laughs> is that further down the list? I think so, yeah. Okay, well, we'll have to check what that is. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Shani said that's 65% of the index. It's tied up in three countries, and there's a particularly bulky holding in 
China. So that is a pretty large dependence on the success of one economy. But again, we see that in other indexes. So IWLD, that's the iShares MSCI World All Cap ETF. That is 65% of its holdings in the US. So just something to be mindful of, especially as these countries tend to have more volatility than developed markets. So let's move on to a couple of the endemic risks of investing in emerging markets. And let's start with currency and currency risk. Yeah, so we did uh, we did one of these on international investing, and just like if you were investing in developed markets, if you're investing in emerging markets, you need to purchase equities or fixed income or anything else in that country's currency. And this is a risk with all international investing. If you invest in the U.S. market or the U.K. market, you'd still be exposed to currency risk. And currency risk is simply the possibility of losing money based on currency movements. The degree, though, is far more extreme when we're investing in emerging market currencies because there can be a lot more volatility. If we look at the MISCI Emerging Markets Index between April 2005 and July 2020, if you had hedged your currency risk, you would have received a return of 25.31% if you were 100% hedged. In that same period, an unhedged investment would return minus 23.29%. We can compare that to the S&P 500, hedged for the same period, achieving 45.5% and unhedged 65.5%. In this case, the unhedged performed better, but not at such a significant rate. Yeah, so in both cases, it is obviously a pretty significant difference, and that would result in starkly different outcomes for an investor. But the difference between hedged and unhedged for emerging markets was almost 50% for that period. And let's take a look at active. So Capital Group's new world fund is rated gold by our analysts and has a hedged and unhedged version. So since inception in 2017, Capital Group have achieved 80.82% with unhedged and 76.5% for their hedged, a smaller discrepancy and an impressive result. And I think that's the perfect place to start diving into how um, to manage the risks of these investments and how they could be incorporated into your portfolio. So first, let's dive into volatility and how it can impact your financial goals. Through this, we can hopefully learn where emerging markets may play a part in your portfolio or if it should at all. Volatility is part and parcel of equity investing. As investors, we take on the risk for a chance at a higher return. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how sequencing risk works and how you should take it into consideration within your investment strategy. And hopefully that can give you some insight into whether emerging markets has a place in your portfolio. So sequencing risk is the risk that the order and timing of your investment returns are unfavorable, resulting in less money for your goals. So sequencing risk is especially dangerous for retirement goals towards the end of the accumulation phase at an early retirement. Your savings pool is generally at its height, and that means you're just more exposed to market movements given the volume of capital at risk. So sequencing risk is most significant during the last 10 years of investors' accumulation phase and the first 10 years of retirement. The sequence of returns during that period has a significant impact on the sustainability of the retirement income. And this is where we need to consider whether emerging markets fit into a portfolio for pre-retirees and retirees. A fall in market value of investments would leave the investor much less time to recover and increase the probability of a shortfall of funds in the late stages of retirement, which basically means you could die or run out of money before you die. <laughs> you just wanted to leave it. You could die. Yeah, and then we would just cut this very, thing. Yeah. It sounds like a podcast you would listen yeah. to. Um, yeah, I do like my true crime podcast. So um, we did see the decade following 2000 and the decade following 2010 had vastly different outcomes. Let's go through a quick example of how sequencing risk can impact returns. So if you start with $1,000, say that the market falls and you lose 20%. 
The investment is now valued at $800. A 20% gain only restores your val- the value of your investment to $960 and you need 25% to bring you back to square. What this means is that your money needs to work harder for you to even break even. Then if we look at a more severe scenario, you have $1,000 and you lose 50% like in that example with the Emerging Markets Index, that will bring you to $500. A 50% gain restores your value to $750 and you need 100% gain to get you back to square. All right. So yeah, what this example shows is that volatility and the sequencing of this volatility can really impact your outcomes. So emerging markets can perform really well, but consider that later in retirement, when there's less time for your savings to recover, large drops in volatility may have dire consequences if incorrectly implemented within your portfolio. Large drops, like in the example for someone close to retirement, may mean that this person may have to postpone their retirement date, rejoin the workforce, or they may need to reduce expenditure and make different lifestyle choices. So how do we decide how much of a high-risk asset should be in a portfolio, and how do we combat sequencing risk? Well, there's an obvious one, and that's, of course, diversification. These uneven returns that you often see with emerging markets can be combated by not investing all of your money in emerging markets, which... Hopefully, most people realize. <laughs> so seems pretty simple because it is simple. So asset classes all perform differently over time. And this is exasperated by that volatility we spoke about that's intrinsic to emerging markets. So this can be used at all stages of your investing journey, of course, to varying degrees. We spoke about this a little bit in our portfolio construction episode, but your exposure to this aggressive allocation will depend on a few things, but mainly time horizon if you're following a goals-based methodology. The closer you are to reaching your goal, the less volatility you want in your portfolio. The further you are away from your goal, the more you can afford to take on riskier assets like emerging market equities. Then there's the bucket strategy, and this is just another way to cut diversification. It's the same thing, just a different way. Mark has spoken on webinars before about using the bucket strategy for his mother's retirement, and that's where you find the bucket strategy the most often, and that's in retirement. And that is actually the webinar. The bucket strategy webinar is the one that you pay the most attention to. Because there's a bucket of KFC in it. So. <laughs> yes. Shani is, a, Shani is a big fan of KFC. So anyway other than KFC, let's talk a little bit about bucket strategy. So basically what a bucket strategy is, is that you have different buckets based on your time horizon. So there is a now bucket, and this means you're keeping a few years of cash for you to draw down. So if markets fall dramatically, you have cash reserves to call on for a few years. Well, hopefully the equity component recovers. So in this case, emerging markets hopefully recover. And you ensure that you have a few years of cash means you're not making your situation worse by selling during a downturn. So then you can have a short-term bucket if you want. So that's a three to five-year bucket where you might have bonds, time deposits, uh, more conservative equities that have a shorter time horizon. And this bucket can just replenish that cash bucket at set intervals. And then you have a long-term bucket. That's where you see some of those real growth assets where you would put emerging markets. And of course, emerging markets can be a subset of your long-term bucket where you keep high-risk strategies that require longer time horizons. Mark, I know you use a version of the bucket strategy and you are, in fact, not retired because you're forced to come and record these things with me. Um, how do you use bucket strategies? Yeah, no, I mean, I said, I think I've said this before. Like, I do use uh, my portfolios to fund travel. So at the end of the day, all that is is letting cash build up. Of course, covid was very convenient for this, um, letting cash build up and then use it, using it to pay for next year's travel. So it's a pretty short-term bucket strategy, but a little bit of a different approach. And one of the things I saved on last year is I was supposed to go to Sri Lanka. 
You were. I was also supposed to go to Sri Lanka. Well, I know. We were going to meet there. (laughs) You were going to show me around. I was. Um, But of course, that did not happen. Hopefully in the future, mate. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, ultimately, there are many ways to incorporate emerging markets into your portfolio. They've been heralded as one of the best opportunities that we're going to see for investing in this current market, with many developed economies seen as overvalued. Many respected investors and investment managers are on the same wavelength. We are teetering on the verge of a bubble bursting, and these markets can soften the blow in the short and long term. Yeah, and how you utilize emerging markets, if at all, in your investment strategy is dependent on the amount of risk you need in order to reach your goals and the time horizon you have. So investors can utilize emerging markets in the aggressive portions of their portfolios, or they can utilize a bucket strategy. And it's important to be wary of the risks. So sequencing risk that comes from currency risk, from volatility risk, and all that is driven by political, economic, and social instability. So in a diversified portfolio, of course, these risks can be managed. As we mentioned, active managers have traditionally done well in this sector because of inefficiencies in the underlying market. Ultimately, it's under-researched and for professionals, it's easier to find undervalued opportunities in these markets and beat their passive rivals. Okay, I think we're going to call it there, Shani. So hopefully people today learned about emerging markets, but also learned about you. And about you, Mark. Mostly about you, though, <laughs> right? So we, we, we learned about your new water bottle today. We did. Which I think is key. And that I love cricket. And that you love cricket and that you love fried chicken. Yeah, I mean, what else is there to know? Yeah, basically that <laughs> uh, that paints, that just paints a picture of you, Shani. Uh, so anyway, we would love to hear from you. So there is an email address that's in the episode notes. And what we'd like to hear is if you have any suggestions for future episodes. So this episode was a suggestion from Jason, Mm -hmm. which was very nice. He also made some funny comments about us. (laughs) Um, So we do do appreciate comments. Maybe we'll share those on a future episode. Mm And, uh, and yeah, let us, uh, let us know what you think of it. We'd also love to have a comment or a rating through your podcast app, but send us an email. It's my email. I'm lonely. I like to get them. So, uh, so yeah, send it away. And any final words, Shani? No. You look like you were going to say something. No. She's going to wait till we stop <laughs> recording, but thank you guys very much for joining. We will be back soon. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.